Wow, that was great, wasn't it? That's real refreshing just to have some new, fun, exciting stuff going on up here and uh, to see what our Kids Way classes are doing. Our staff and uh, volunteers and leaders and stuff at Kids Way, they are doing a fantastic job of training our kids and just helping them learn. If you ever think that it's just babysitting, let me just say, if you ever say that it's just babysitting and one of our Kids Way staff is around you, duck because they might just smack you, because it's not babysitting. They are teaching our kids, and our kids are learning, as you can see, even as young as four. Scarlett's four, and she's learning these verses. That's such a cool thing. And what's cool about that is that's what we're doing in here. That's what we do in this room, is we're learning um, not only what the scriptures say, but we're learning how to apply it and how to live it out in our lives, and that's a very cool thing. We've been in this series uh, talking about being amazed by Jesus, and, and I've brought out that there are 41 different times, 41 different events in the Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four writers of the Gospels, um, 41 different times where people refer to their experience with Jesus as being amazing. And I, I think, I, I find that, for lack of words, amazing, that they were literally awestruck by what Jesus not only did, but said, and it moved them. It changed their life. Um, just recently, I had someone say to me, and it, and it was a really good question, and I took it to heart. Someone said to me, why is it so important that we learn all of this stuff about Jesus? Because it was like 2,000 years ago that it took place. Why, why is it all, you know, so important that we, that we see what Jesus did and we you know, understand what Jesus said and all this kind of stuff? And I got to be honest, uh, at first I, I thought, wait, 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 that's my job. Right? I mean, have you ever had anybody like challenge what you do for your work and vocation? And it wasn't, they weren't challenging it, but it, I kind of took it to that at first. And I backed up and I'm like, he's right, God. What, what, what difference does it make? Why, why should we spend our time on a Sunday morning? Why should I spend my time throughout the week preparing stuff? Why should we spend our time looking at who Jesus is and what he did and what he said? Why, what's, what's so important about it? And uh, in my quiet time just this, this week, God brought me to this verse, and I've known this verse before, but I guess I never really saw it in this light. And uh, it's not on your outline. If you want to write it down, it's Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. This is a really good verse. Take a look at this. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways through the prophets, and now God has spoken to us through his Son. And what hit me at least for me, I can't speak for you, I can speak for me. I want to hear God speak into my life. Because I believe that it's important for me to know what he says. It's important for me to hear what he wants to say to me in each situation of my life on an everyday basis. I need to hear those things. And so, you know, in listening to God, and I don't know what your way of listening, I have certain things that I do, reading the Bible and journaling and praying and different that, and I'm listening to God. I listen through other believers, and I, you know, I, I, th that's why this is so important to be a part of a church. But anyway, in listening, I want to make sure that I'm hearing him. And one of the big things that I'm seeing is that if I focus on Jesus, which, which later on, it's interesting, it says that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. If I focus in on Jesus, I am listening to God. Isn't that a cool thought? If I study, if I read, if I become very, um, if, if I know more and more and more and grow in my knowledge of him, not just information but experience, if I grow in that, my faith grows, 
and I'm listening to God. I'm hearing him speak through what his son did. And so, man, for the last several times, what is it? This is um, part six, I think, today of our series. We've been talking through these narratives of things that Jesus did. That's why it's important, because it's our way of listening. It's our way of, of hearing God. What's interesting about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is sometimes they have um, a pattern that they write in. Uh, these New Testament writers, um, sometimes they write in a time sequence so that uh, you kind of can follow along one event after the other, after the other, one day after the other, after the other. Sometimes there's gaps, you know, and, and we kind of read that. But in Matthew 15, the text that we're going to look at this morning, we see that there is a one day right after the other. There is a, a sequence of writing that, um, that I think it's really important for us to catch. And so, Hang on, fasten your seatbelt. We're going to hit it really hard and fast, and I promise to get you out on time, okay? Um, but we're going to hit most of Matthew 15, the entire chapter, because I want you to see the sequence of what takes place, because I think it'll speak to us today. So let's pick it up, verse 1 and, and verse 2. Some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from where? What's the word there? Jerusalem. Now, that's really important because they're coming from Jerusalem, which is where the, the center of the Jewish faith resided. It was the, the most important place for the Jewish faith. And chances are people uh, in the religious Jewish, the Jewish religious system, they were sending these guys to kind of question Jesus, to challenge him, to kind of trap him if they can, um, to expose him as being fake as being not the Messiah, as being um, someone who is contrary to what they believe. And so they came trying to catch Jesus, and they asked him a question. They said, why don't your followers obey the unwritten laws which have been handed down to us? You say, oh, that's, that's kind of important. Well, then they kind of specify one. Look what it says. They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, how many of you have ever told that to your kid, your grandkid, or somebody around you? Like, oh, man, dude, go wash your hands. You're gross. You know, don't eat your... Well, that's not what they were talking about. Okay? So just get that out of your mind. They weren't really talking about... It has nothing to do with washing off your dirty hands. They were referring to a Jewish ritual, a tradition of washing to maintain spiritual purity. So it had everything to do in their eyes about spirituality, which included mealtimes. So they had to wash in a certain way to maintain in their mind, in their eyes, spiritual cleanness, purity. Nothing concerned the Jewish religious leaders more than staying clean. In fact, I would say maybe, you know, equal with that, nothing concerned the Jewish religious leaders more than staying away from anything that was unclean. I mean, anything. Any animal that wasn't kosher, any activity that wasn't okay, and especially any person who was unclean, stay away from them. That was the most important thing to them. In their eyes, nothing made you more unclean than neglecting their rituals or hanging out with unclean people. Now keep that in your head. Because in response, Jesus says in verse 3, Jesus answered, why do you refuse to obey God's commands so that you can follow your own teachings? Whoa, wait. See, what had taken place is God had given the commands, and if you know anything about um, ancient Jewish history, God gave the commands through Moses, and there were how many commands? Anybody know that he gave? Ten, right? He gave ten commands, the Decalogue. He gave ten commands, and, and they were to become really the governing law of the nation of Israel, the people of God, the community of Israel. Well, what took place is those ten laws then were kind of 
expanded. They were interpreted by Jewish religious leaders. And over time, those 10 laws became 612 laws. So you've got the 10 that God gave on the mountain, Mount Sinai, to Moses, but then you have 612 plus, really, laws that the Jewish religious leaders came up with that this is the, the rules that we need to follow in order to follow God. These are the hoops, religiously, that we need to jump through to follow God. Now, I'm not going to go into all of these 612. You could Google it and find out a lot of them, but there, some of them were really crazy things that you could and couldn't do. Uh, in order to stay spiritually clean. And so Jesus is saying, why are you following all of those and neglecting what God gave on the mountain? You were picking your rules and putting them on top of what God says. Why are you doing that? Look what he says. He continues. You reject what God said for the sake of your own rules. And then he throws out this big word, you are hypocrites. You know what's interesting? In our world, this is not even on the notes. In our world, the number one complaint about people that go to church is that outsiders believe they are hypocrites. That we don't live what we say. That we don't live the way God says we should live. Interesting. So Jesus is bringing out this word, and he's saying, you religious leaders, you're following all these rules, these man-made rules, but you're not really doing what God says. He's condemning their religious functions. I mean, they, they are focused on rituals rather than doing what God says, and rituals will never change a person's heart. It really won't. You can keep doing the same spiritual rituals time after time. You can keep coming to church time after time. But if you never really know why you're doing and who you're doing it for, it will never change your life. In fact, I've met people like that. I've met people who have been going to church for 30 years, but they're still the same they were the first year that they started going to church. They haven't changed. God's after changing our heart. So after a little bit more teaching on this, we're going to kind of skip ahead, hit the fast forward button. A little bit more teaching on this. What does Jesus do? He's, he's telling them, you're not doing what God says. You're following all these man-made rules, and all your man-made rules are all about staying clean and avoiding everything that's unclean. And look at what Jesus does in verse 21. He goes right into an unkosher area to be with unclean people. Jesus left that place and went to the era, area of Tyre, and Sidon. Jesus travels. Now, this is what I want you to get. This was not just a walk across the street. This is approximately 50 miles on foot that he traveled to go to this area. Do you think he was doing it intentionally? Absolutely. Would you ever travel 50 miles on foot if it wasn't intentionally? No. So he's doing this intentionally, and, and he's taking these mountain passage roads. It was not easy walking, all right? And so he comes to Tyre and Sidon, these two port cities. If you're looking at a map today, take a look at the map. If you're looking at a map today, they would be on the Mediterranean coast of the area of Lebanon. And you can see they're way up, and you can see down below there's Galilee and Capernaum and Canaan and Nazareth, all those areas down below. So he, he walked a long way to get to these areas specifically. And here's the kicker. This is the only time that's recorded in the New Testament that Jesus leaves the territory of Israel. 
to go to these kind of places. And what's significant is that Jesus and the Jewish leaders had just been talking about being pure, about clean and unclean. That was just their conversation. Do you see? You got to connect the dots. Sometimes if we read through these kind of narratives, if we don't connect the dots, we miss the point. Jesus was making a point by going to this area. Tyre and Sidon were culturally and religious hubs for the Canaanites. If you know anything about ancient Old Testament history, the Canaanites were people that opposed the people of Israel. And what's interesting is in uh, Genesis 9 and 10, again, I don't have enough time to go into it, but in Genesis 9 and 10, the Canaanites were a people group, a tribal group, that were founded on perversion. And so this is... if, if If you want to say that this was an unclean people group, this is a very unclean people group that Jesus is going to see. So get that in your head. And into this culture, Jesus is approached, take a look, by a Canaanite woman from that area came to Jesus and cried out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I don't know if you've got your outline in front of you, but I want you to do a couple of things, so please get this out. I want you to circle the word Lord, and I want you to circle the phrase Son of David. Lord and Son of David. This is interesting. By saying Lord, she is acknowledging the supernatural power of Jesus. So, so keep this in your head. And by saying Son of David, this is the Jewish Not Canaanite, the Jewish messianic title that acknowledges Jesus as king of the world. So this lady is addressing him as the one who has supernatural power and the one who is king of the world according to the Jews. This is big. I mean, she doesn't come to Jesus and she's not showing this entitlement. I mean, she's not making demands. She's not telling him what she deserves for him to do for her. What does she ask for? What's the word? Have what? Mercy. She's not saying, you need to do this. You have to do this. She's saying, would you please? Would you move in my life? Would you do something for me? She's basically saying, I don't deserve anything. All I need is mercy from you. She continues, verse 22, my daughter has a demon and she is suffering very much. So so get this, she seeks and believes that Jesus can heal her daughter. This is a Canaanite woman, an unkosher, unclean person, a non-Jew that believes that Jesus is the Messiah That Jesus has power, and he can do what she needs him to do. Now, the irony of this is the people in Jesus' own area. In fact, the people in his own hometown, we are told in the New Testament, didn't believe in Jesus, and he could do no miracles there. And yet he goes to the most unkosher, unclean area, and he finds faith. Is that amazing? In in the most outside area from where he is spiritually, he finds someone of faith. But Jesus doesn't respond the way that you would think, (laughs) at least for me. I read it and went, what? 
Look what he does in verse 23. But Jesus did not answer the woman. How rude. Right? I mean, first you read that and you go, wow. You, you would think that he would show mercy here. I mean, this lady is showing faith. Jesus doesn't answer. And so this unclean pagan woman follows them for some time. And what's interesting, I didn't, I didn't include it here, but the, she follows them enough, asking enough that finally the disciples of Jesus in the scripture in the text, they basically say, would you please deal with this woman she's driving? That's crazy. Just talk to her, something. Get her off her back. So Jesus talks to his disciples about his calling, kind of clarifies that. He's making some, some points. We, you know, it's interesting is we often find ourselves in this place where this woman is at, where, where she is asking Jesus to do something and there's no answer. And so, and so we, we plead and we plead and we pray and we pray and we seek and we seek and, and it feels like there is no answer. And I don't know about you, but it Sometimes life is full of problems and full of struggles and full of impossibilities. And, and we cry out to God when we face these circumstances. We're desperate for help. We're desperate for things to change, for God to do something, to do, to do anything. We're at the end of our rope. We're exhausting our resources. We don't know where else to go. We have no one else to turn to. And this, this woman is following just like us. The woman came to Jesus again. She bowed before him and she said, Lord, help me. This is the tipping point. This is is the, the moment when her faith is truly shown. I mean, she she is so desperate that she falls before him. This word bowed down, or bowed rather, before him. It's a proskuneo, which is a, a, a Greek word that really talks about falling on your face in the dirt. She was that desperate. And she says, Lord, would you please help me? Huh. This is seeking. If, if, if you have things going on in your life, this should speak to you today because this is seeking. This is what desperate looks like. So often I don't think we're desperate enough to seek God in the way that we should. I mean, after all, he is our source, right? I mean, her actions reveal her heart. She was fully aware of her situation, and she knew that Jesus was the only one who could change things. But she is a non-Jew, an outsider, really an outsider to the blessing of God, an outsider to God doing anything in her life. God established this covenant through Abraham, and, and, and who would be a, a forefather of the nation of Israel um, in, in the book of Genesis. And then God put this covenant into motion with his people through the leadership of Moses in Exodus. So God promises to bless the Jewish people as they follow him. And yet here she is, this non-Jew, and she is asking Jesus as God, right, as Messiah, Jewish Messiah, to please help her, to please show her mercy, And look at what Jesus says in verse 28. Woman, you have, what's those next two words? Great 
faith. You know what you could write in if you want to give it a real cultural spin? It's the same word we use for mega. You have mega faith. You have big faith. You have faith that surpasses anybody else. He looks at her and he goes, I am, I'm amazed by your faith. Now, what's really interesting about this is Jesus was only amazed by two people in regards to their faith. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will never find it except for two situations where Jesus says, you have great faith. Two situations, one here in Matthew 15, but then also if you back up in Matthew 8. Here's the kicker. (laughs) The only two people that Jesus ever highlighted about having great faith in both situations, they were not Jewish. (laughs) So what does Jesus do? Here's the point. I want you to write it down. Jesus will do something for anyone who asks with a belief that he can. Jesus will do something for anyone who asks with a belief that he can. The catch on this, the terms, the condition, is are you asking with a belief that he can? This woman is asking. She believes that he is Messiah, that he has power, that he is the king of the world. She believes, and that's why she asks. Is that the way you ask? Do you believe? Do you believe that he can? No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you come to Jesus, if you believe in him, Jesus will do something in your life. Jesus will do something for anyone who asks with a belief. Now, I don't know about you, but that really gets me excited inside. You know why? Because I'm not a Jew. And chances are, neither are you. And if Jesus is willing to show mercy to a non-Jew, hang on, to a non-Jew before the cross happened, how much mercy will he pour out in our lives now after the cross? Oh, man. Jesus wasn't done, though. I mean, I, I was ready to stop. I read that story. I'm like, oh, this is it right here. And God goes, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not done. Look at this. Keep going. Verse 28. After leaving there, Jesus went along the shore of Lake Galilee. He went up on a hill and sat there. Now, what's interesting is Matthew is really general here. The writer Matthew, he really doesn't give us a whole lot of detail, so we really can't follow the location. But the writer Mark, in his synopsis and his um, writing that's very similar in this account, take a look what Mark says. It says, Then Jesus left the area around Tyre and went through Sidon to Lake Galilee, to the area of the ten towns. Now what's really interesting about this, stay with me here, is this doesn't say exactly where they are, but it tells us who is there. It's telling us that Jesus was still in non-Jewish areas. It's going to be really important here in just a minute, you'll see. He's still hanging out with non-Jewish people. Get this, he's still in unkosher areas with unclean people, right? Back to to Matthew 4, in fact, we see that the first beginning of Jesus' ministry, we're told that 
people were coming from these areas, even way back then. I mean, look what it says. Large crowds followed Jesus wherever he went. This one, Jesus is just starting up. It says, people from Galilee and the, what, 10 towns, Jerusalem, and all over Judea. So in the very beginning of his ministry, he's already having people interested in who he is and what he's doing from these outside areas, non-Jewish areas. They, they were people who were very much aware of who Jesus was. In fact, it seems that they had more receptive hearts than a lot of the Jews who were limited by their laws and rules and regulations. I mean, Jesus even talks about open hearts when he criticizes his own Jewish people. I mean, take a look at Matthew 11. Jesus criticized the cities where he did most of his miracles, which, by the way, were in Jewish areas. Jesus did most of his ministry in Jewish areas. And he criticizes them because the people did not change their lives and stop sinning. This is what Jesus said. If the same miracles I did for you happened in Tyre and Sidon, those people would have changed their lives a long time ago. Wow. Jesus is saying, I'm finding more faith in these outsiders' lives than those, hang on, who go to church every week. Oh, there's the catch. Hmm. Although he's not done reaching the Jews, Jesus is going to where hearts are open. You don't feel that Jesus is with you. Could it be that your heart is closed? So until Jesus went to this region, he had only been in Jewish areas. He was only teaching and healing Jewish people. But now he reaches out to anyone. Look at it. Great crowds came to Jesus, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, those who could not speak, and many others. It's just like the the Canaanite woman. They they come right to Jesus. These non-Jewish people are expressing their faith by bringing their loved ones, their friends, people who are lame, crippled, disabled, blind, others to to Jesus. And look at verse 30. It says, they put them at Jesus' feet. Hang on. Right here, four words that are huge. And he healed them. In fact, if you look it up in in the scripture text, if you go to the original text, what the indicator is, I can add a word. He healed them all. All. People who were unclean, unkosher, outsiders to the faith, didn't go to church. He healed them all. (laughs) Even though they were non-Jews. Amazing. The mercy of God is pouring out on people, is overflowing on people through Jesus even before the cross. Even before Jesus would sacrifice his life and pay for our sins on the cross, he's already pouring out the mercy of God in the lives of those who don't deserve it. They're far from the faith. And what Jesus did was amazing. Look what it says in verse 31. The crowd was what? Amazed. There's our word, amazed. When they saw, don't miss this, when they saw 
The people who could not speak before were now able to speak. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. Does that mean that they didn't have a tongue? I mean, my mind just, I, my imagination just kind of rolled with, what if, they did, what if they were born without a tongue? What, what, what if they didn't have a tongue? And right there on the spot when Jesus touched or said or whatever he did, right there they grew a tongue and they're starting to talk. Wow. Would you be amazed? I would be. Look what it says. The, the crippled were made what? Strong. <laughs> the, the lame could walk and the blind could see. People who never talked were talking. People who never walked were walking. There was no human explanation for this. This was not possible. This was incredibly amazing. And verse 31, look what it says. And they praise the God of Israel for this. And we read right past that and we miss it. Let's back up. Let's read that again. Here we go. And they praised who? The God. Wait, 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 wait. And they praised the God of Israel. Who were these people? They were not Jewish. They were not of Israel. These unclean, unkosher people are praising the God of Israel for what Jesus did, just did. And not too long from now, the people of, of the Jewish people of Israel will, will crucify Jesus and not believe in him. Isn't that ironic to you? I find that so amazing that these people are so open. Why? Because they're desperate. Desperateness will open your heart like nothing else will to the move of Jesus Christ in your life. And so often, we short-circuit what God is trying to do in our life because we try to rush through the circumstance. And I'm not, I'm, listen, I don't know your circumstance. I don't know your situation. I don't know what you're going through. And I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want it because I have my own stuff. But I know that through the circumstance is what causes me. I want to find out. Talk to me later. I'll tell you some stuff that we're going through right now. It causes me to be desperate. It causes me to hit my knees and say, God, I don't, I don't have anywhere else to go. I don't know what to do. And I need your help. It pushes me to that point. So never discount the situation that you are in. Because in Romans 8, I'm told, and I'm so thankful for this, that God can take whatever I face even the bad, and he can turn it into something good in my life if I love him and follow him. And that's what we need to hear, is desperateness opens us up to what Jesus wants to do. I, don't miss this. These, these people are, are Gentiles. It wasn't their God. And the writer says that they chose to worship the God of Israel because of what they saw in Jesus. And, and don't miss this part. And this goes on and on and on and on. Great crowds. 
A lot of the times I think we think that was Jesus and his 12 boys following and a few stragglers. No. Researchers believe that at any moment that Jesus was in ministry, as he would move through the crowd, we're talking hundreds if not thousands of people following him. So when the scripture says great crowds came, we're going to see in just a minute how many we're talking about. Great crowds came bringing their sick, their lame, their blind to Jesus. And he healed them all. How long did that take? I'll give you a little tip. Three days. We'll see in just a minute. He was doing this for three days with these people. Take a look. Second day it happens. Third day it happens. Jesus calls in verse 32 his followers and he says, I feel sorry for these people because they have already been with me. How many days? Three days. You see, when you, when you put these events together in a narrative, all of a sudden it really makes sense. He was healing people for three days. So, so these people, the first day, went all day long and he's healing people. And it got tonight, what do these people do? They just found a place and they laid on the ground somewhere. I don't know, maybe they brought a, a tent or something. I don't know what, they, they obviously didn't have RVs, right? So I don't know what they did. An air mattress wasn't there, right? They just laid on the ground, families and stuff, just laying on the ground. And they slept, they got up the next day, second day, they did the same thing. Jesus healed person after person after person. And the night came, they went to sleep, they woke up the third day. And now Jesus is looking out and he's going, man, I... These people have been with us three days, guys. I love this phrase. I feel, I feel sorry for these people. They've been here three days. Who, who sets this in motion? This is a little different than, a, than another situation we're going to look at in just a minute. But, but this is initiated by Jesus, by what he's, what he's feeling for the people. Matthew and Mark both say that Jesus felt strongly about this. And, and, and here in this translation, we... You know, you know the phrase lost in translation. We kind, of, we kind of lose. The English language kind of just misses this idea completely. If you don't know, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, Koine Greek. That was the language of the time. And then it had to be translated. I don't know about you, but I don't read Koine Greek very fluently. And so it has to be translated into English so that I can read it, so that you can read it. And sometimes instead of translation, exact translation, sometimes there's words in Greek that will have three or four different meanings, but in English there's only one. And so it's like a transliteration is what it's called. And so that's kind of what we have here. I mean, what Jesus was feeling um, was originally expressed through a Greek word that means to feel moved by something in your gut, in your innermost being, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the word, I feel sorry, it just, that doesn't, it doesn't have it, right? I mean, that, that doesn't move me. Oh, I feel sorry for you. You ever say that to somebody and you don't really mean it in our culture that, oh, I'm so sorry. No, you're not. You're just, you're being nice, right? I mean, it's not moving us to a point where we're doubling over because we're feeling it so visceral. And this is what Jesus was feeling. He's, he's feeling this. I feel for these people. In fact, I think the best way to get the feeling that Jesus had was to cross out the word sorry. So on your outline, would you just cross it out? I know we're tampering with the Bible and oh, okay. But I promise lightning's not going to strike. Because I think by reading it this way, I feel for these people. It's truer to the, form, to the form of what Jesus was feeling. He feels for them. Again, 
This is huge. Who are these people? Unkosher, unclean people. And Jesus is feeling for them. Man. Jesus called his followers to him and he said, I feel for these people because they've already been with me three days and they have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry. They might faint while going home. <laughs> He's... He's not just feeling for them spiritually. This is the part I love. He's feeling for them practically. They have nothing to eat. They've been with us all this time, guys. They have nothing to eat. They're going to pass out on the road. I'm already done healing. I don't want to have to heal people on the road too. You, you follow what I'm saying? They need food. They don't need healing. They need food. So he goes to his guys and he, he's extending out his tender mercy even about the issue of food. And look what his followers say. <laughs> How can we get enough bread to feed all these people? Now you're getting the idea that this is a big crowd. We are far away from any town. Jesus said, how many loaves of bread do you have? They answered, seven and a few small fish. Jesus told the people to sit on the ground. And by the way, if you don't know, that's kind of a Jewish thing of, like, why don't you just sit down? It'd kind of be like us. You have people over your house for dinner and you say, go ahead, find, find a place at the table. And everybody sits down. Why are they sitting down? They're waiting on the food, Right? That's what these people are doing. They sit down, they're waiting on the food, and he took the seven loaves of bread and the fish and gave thanks to God. Then he divided the food and gave it to his followers, and they gave it to the people. Wait. All the people ate and were satisfied. This wasn't Costco samples. Right? You ever do that? We were at Sam's Club yesterday. It's like, where are the samples? You know, um, Everyone ate and got full. How much do you need to eat to get full? I know what I would consume. I mean, how much does it take to feed you? I mean, look what it says. Then his followers filled seven baskets with leftover pieces of food. Oh, here we go. There were about 4,000 men there who ate besides women and children. How many are we talking? That could be anywhere about 10,000 to 20,000 people. That were there, hang on, for three days, being healed by Jesus, and now he feeds them. Wow. Talk about being amazed. If they were amazed at the healing, I'm really sure they were amazed at the food event. Right? They ate and they were full. Now, Here's a question for you. Does this sound like another miracle that Jesus did? It's called the feeding of the 5,000. Do you ever hear about that story? And then we have the feeding of the 4,000. And, and I'll be honest with you. I mean, other than the numbers, I mean, you know, the 4,000, the 5,000, all that kind of, other than the, the number of loaves, you know, the, 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 the fish and all that. There were five and there were seven and all of that. It's, it's kind of the same feeding, in fact, it's only back in Matthew 14 that is the feeding of the 5,000, and now we have in Matthew 15 the feeding of the 4,000. And, and, and what's interesting about this is even down to the details of dividing the food, distributing the food through the disciples, all this, it's all identical. So my question is why, Matthew, are you repeating a miracle that he already did in 14, in 15? Why? Why take the space? I'm just being practical. 
Because it's exactly the same miracle, right? I mean, kind of. Other than a few numbers here and there, it's exactly the same miracle. He fed the multitudes, the thousands. No, it's not the same. Location, location. Help me out. Location. Matthew 14, the feeding of the 5,000. That happened in Bethsaida, which was a Jewish area. The feeding of the 4,000 which we're looking at in Matthew 15, happened in the area of the Ten Towns, which was a non-Jewish area. You say, big deal, right? So what? Location, what's the big deal on this? I think it's showing us something, that Jesus has a heart for all people. You don't have to be a Jew for Jesus to love you. Wow. I'm not sure that you're as thankful as I am about that, but I'm really thankful for that because I didn't grow up a Jew. I'm a Gentile. I'm a non-Jewish person. And to think that the promise and the blessing and the covenant, like Paul tells us in Galatians, the promise, the covenant, the blessing of God because of the cross of Jesus Christ, is given not just to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. Jesus has a heart for all people. Now let's put it in our culture, in our thinking. You don't have to be a person who has been to church all your life. You don't have to be a person who knows the 10 verses like these little girls did earlier. You you may still have to use your table of contents to find things in your Bible. It's okay. You you don't have to be a person who knows all the songs to sing. You don't have to be a person who knows all the things that you need to do to kind of look like a Christian. You, You don't have to be that kind of person to have Jesus love you and to have Jesus want to pour out his mercy and his grace into your life for Jesus to do something for you. I remember, remember the point of today? I want you to write it down again so you'll remember it. Jesus will do something for anyone who asks with a belief that he can. He will do something for anyone who asks with a belief that he can. And the key word on that is anyone. Anyone. You, me. No matter what we've done, no matter our past doesn't matter. If we come to him and ask, believing, Jesus will move in our lives. And I don't know about you, but for me, this takes my breath away. It really does. To think that that Jesus loves me, he loves you that much, that anyone, any of us, if we were to come to him and believe that he can make a difference in my life or in my situation, whatever, that, that I'm believing in who Jesus is, I'm believing in what Jesus can do, and I ask, he'll move. He'll do something for you and for me. I don't know about you, but I think Jesus is amazing. 
I've been amazed that throughout this study, and I continue to be amazed at what Jesus wants to do in our lives and what he is ready to do in our lives. But all we got to do is ask and believe, ask and believe, and we'll see it. Would you stand with me? I wanted to wrap off with...